he looked at me and said, you were the one who was supposed to be like me. And, and I remember just saying, I don't want to be like you. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Photographer Luna Luis Ortiz is known in the New York City ballroom scene as the legendary father of the House of Khan, as depicted in the TV show Pose. Diagnosed with HIV as the result of a rape in the mid-80s when he was just 14, he was told he only had two years to live. Despite a lack of societal and family support, Luna became a spokesperson for living with HIV at a time when the virus was tearing through gay communities all over the world with no treatment or cure in sight. Now almost 50, Luna defied his prognosis and has spent his life so far being the mentor to young queer people of color that he'd wished he'd had. On this Pride-themed episode of Tell Me About Your Father, Luna talks with Matthew about the relationship he had with his dad, an immigrant from Puerto Rico who effectively disowned him upon hearing of his son's diagnosis, and describes the ways in which he discovered an alternate family and gay father within the houses of the ballrooms, the bittersweet reunion he had with his dad just before his death, and the important way in which his dad helped him find his voice despite their decades-long estrangement. Just a heads up, this episode contains a graphic description of rape between minutes 11 and 16 for listeners that would prefer to forward to its aftermath. Okay, let's hear from Luna. When he moved to New York City with his mother, I believe in 1967, 68. And he immediately met my mother. <laughs> and my mother was head over heels. They were both um, high school sweethearts. He spoke no English whatsoever. And he worked at a bodega that was, I believe, owned by somebody that the family knew, or it could have been a family member. That part, I don't know. He fell in love with my mother's uh, little beauty mark that she had. And every time she came into the store, she would poke on, he would poke on it. Like he'll poke and say, oh, I love this little, <laughs> this little mark right here. Uh, it's on her shoulder. And my mother would giggle and say, don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> but then she kept going to the bodega. So she would go home and say like, oh, mom, do you need more bread? Do you need more right. milk? I believe when they met, my mother was like 15 and my dad was 17. How did you find this out? I used to always ask my mother because I was just curious. I'm, I'm like my dad. I'm a curious person. I'm intrigued with the past, which I believe my dad is too. Because when I, I recall letting him know that I, I was interested in learning where our family began, he was very excited about stuff like that. He liked knowing that, okay, we're Puerto Rican, but what else? And so I remember that being sort of a, a form of excitement for him. And it's also because it's the unknown. That was part of the beauty of like who he was as a person. He actually was the one that introduced me to photography. He was so intrigued with photography. He wasn't a photographer where he'll go and photograph trees and life, and but he was the photographer for the family. And so whenever we had family gatherings, it was my dad taking photographs. And that's kind of where that came in for me. 
Did you learn anything about how he saw the world by seeing the photographs that he took? I look at it as as an existence, like we existed. And I think it's because there's hardly a lot of photos of when he was growing up. It's very few. And so I think people couldn't afford cameras in Puerto Rico in the 1930s and 40s. And so I think that part of his him being intrigued was having a camera meant that you are able to document a life. It, it'll remain. And in, in a way that echoes into how my thought process was in my teens, early teens, and dealing with things. And so I think it's sort of connected, even though we never said it. That's how I look at it. Because he really was excited about his cameras. And he was always so excited to take a photograph. He wanted to document his new life, his world, his children growing up. And so he was constantly taking photographs. Most of my life is on film because my dad was so so adamant about documenting these moments that were so important to him. And he was also away from his family. It was really just my siblings, my mom, and him. And we had cousins, but everybody was sort of distant. I'm glad he did that (laughs) because I have a wonderful archive that my mom still has of like our life growing up in New York City in the 70s. My father's work ethic is amazing because he sometimes worked three, sometimes four jobs, which is incredible. And so I think part of them coming to New York was so they could have a better life, quote unquote. As soon as he got here at 17-ish, he was working at a bodega. He stocked the shelves. And so that was kind of what they wanted. Puerto Rico in the 1950s, it's not like Puerto Rico right now. It was like small homes, all the sugar cane in the world you want, (laughs) all the coffee you want, Mm -hmm. um, all the fruit you could grab from the tree directly. Although I look at that and say, I would have stayed in Puerto Rico. But looking at it as, oh, I need to make a living and I need to make money so I can send money back to the family. So then I could understand why a lot of Puerto Ricans and other folks that come to America, why that was important for them is to, you know, to have a life, to create a life, to to be able to provide for not only his family here, but his family in Puerto Rico, even tax season, he would give his mother pretty much half of it. (laughs) So what was the life that he provided for you as a child? What was that like? For me, I think the life was absolutely wonderful. The whole time that I was growing up, I was well protected. And my father was absent a lot because he did work so much. My dad would only see moments, little small moments of us growing up because he really was so busy. But the beauty of having my dad around when he wasn't working so much, because we did have the weekends. The weekends were the days that my brother and I were able to hang out with my dad. So although he worked late Friday, Saturday morning, we'll wake up and go to the park up the block. And this is when we were living in the Bronx at the time. And this is obviously the 19, late 70s. And we know what the Bronx was like in the 70s. It wasn't the safest thing, but he protected us so well. It, it, it was just great to just be out with dad because we were very secluded, actually, thinking about it. We would go to school and go home. And sometimes cousins would come over, but we were still indoors. It was a pleasure and an honor to like go out and enjoy nature. You know, whatever nature was in the 70s in the Bronx. (laughs) Barely any trees. But we had a little park up the block. And I remember the frustration my dad would have with me because he wanted to play with his two sons and like ball catch. And I would do it. 
I have photographs where I was like, I have the mitten on, but I really sucked. I just was not good at sports whatsoever. <laughs> it just was not in my nature. But what I really was good at was hugging the trees, staring at the flowers. I found beauty in all of it. I was really interested in, in how houses would build. And indirectly, I wanted to be an architect. And I remember him being so excited that I was so interested in that. But, you know, when it was time for the sports, I just was not good at all. Part of his weekend, because he worked so much during the week, he would just watch whatever was happening on television. And for some reason in the 70s, Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood were like the guys to watch. And I would like curl up. Um, on my dad's lap like I would put my head on his lap and he would be like if it's a funny film he would like laugh he would be like rubbing my head and I thought it was the most wonderful feeling because you know who doesn't like their head to be rubbed and so I remember that being sort of a connection that I had with my dad where he would rub my head and then he would stop because either something was really funny or something was really intense in the film. So I would move just so he remembered that I'm still, my head is still right there. And so he would then, you know, start massaging, you know, my head. And at the time I had my little afro. <laughs> so it just felt really good. And him sitting down with me um, and showing me his music collection and him trying to teach me how to play the conga and the maracas. Those are the moments that I cherish when I used to accompany him out. He would like nudge, look at that cute little girl over there. Do you think she looks like she's your age? Do you like her? What do you like about her? And I'll be like, oh, her hair is nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like her shirt. But dad was doing what dads do. He was trying to figure me out. And yeah. he wasn't the greatest speaker in the sense of like trying to figure out who I, I'm becoming. And this is now I'm like 12, 13. And I was being defiant and discovering myself. I remember... There's a quote that I have that I paraphrase it, but it's kind of what he was trying to say. He gave me the camera and told me to capture everything. That's the only way you exist. And so I thought that was kind of important, and especially because when I was 13, discovering myself even more. But the funny thing is that he gave me the camera and I was like, oh, it was one of his cameras. It wasn't like it was a new camera. In my self-discovery from the age of 13, I already knew what did you know? I was different from the boys in my family. That I did know. And I didn't know what that meant. I was different from my brother and my cousins. When we were playing superhero and Batman and all of that, I was either Catwoman or Wonder Woman. Like, I never took the role of any of the men superheroes. But I could trace this all the way back to, like, when I was, like, three, four, five years old. Like, there was, like, just something different about how I functioned. And yeah, I do remember some of it. A lot of people say, how do you remember when you were three? Because you remember the reactions of people. And so mm -hmm. that never leaves your mind, even at age three, which I'm a great believer yeah, about. Totally. You have to be careful with kids, you know, because kids remember things. You think they don't know what's happening. They know what's happening. Anyway, so when I was, it was my brother's birthday, it was July 27th of 1986. And although it was my brother's turn to walk the dog, because it was his birthday, he was with his friend. So my mother said, oh, you know, go walk the dog. I had just turned, like, before I became 14, so probably mid-86. So I would see this guy regularly. It was like, oh, hey, how are you? Because eventually he was talking to me. I didn't realize or didn't know anything about gay cruising. And so, you know, I didn't know that men met at parks and did things at parks. And so while I was walking my dog, I stumbled upon these activities. And so, of course, I was a little bit intrigued by 
why is there so many men around? So that's where I met the guys. Now going to July of 86. So when I saw him, what seemed different was he wanted to walk a little bit further in. Because normally it was just conversation. He liked Betty Davis. I liked Marilyn Monroe. So that was kind of like my conversation. He was 30. I was a kid. I was 14. I didn't see anything outside of just like, oh, my dog, your dog, Betty Davis, Marilyn Monroe. They were in the film All About Eve together. That's all I knew. And so, oh, I like Madonna too. Yeah. Uh, so he uh, it's like, oh, let's go. Let's go this way. And so I go, I follow him. And it's I was basically I was lured. So I was lured to go to this little secluded spot. It's where gay men go cruising. And we sat there and I remember he kind of made me feel good. I remember him complimenting me. Um, I had my little pimples and stuff and I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> but um, I didn't feel as cute as the compliments that he was giving. And so he kind of like started with that. That led to like, oh, uh, you know, guys could like hug and kiss. And so I got lost in these compliments with this man. And next thing you know, we're doing stuff that I didn't even know men could do because nobody even on top of that explained to me that being gay was actually sex. I thought when you heard people call you, you know, the F word or, or they say, oh, you're gay or you're different. I didn't know in 1986 that that was like, that was actually something else. So I remember, again, the trees. I remember just looking at the trees because the way it happened, it was really more like, oh, turn like this. <laughs> oh God, this is so awkward. So it was really more about like to get in position. And so how, do I, how am I supposed to know that? So I remember just yeah. looking at the trees and just thinking, these trees are really beautiful. I wasn't even processing that, you know, there was something in me. I didn't process. I didn't remember the feeling of pain or nothing like that. I don't remember any of it. I do recall when it was done and he just walked away. He didn't even say, you know, see you around or whatever. I don't know what he was supposed to say anyway. But I grabbed my dog and I remember I was walking home. It was the summer, so I was wearing shorts. I remember that the stuff was coming out down my leg and it was shorts. So I remember I kept kind of like with my hand, like wiping it because it was some of it was coming down. And so I remember uh, when I got home, I let the dog run down the hallway. My mother's like, what took you so long? And I remember just going, I was like, nothing, you know, the dog was playing or whatever. I went to the bathroom and I remember I sat and I was you know, I pushed, you know, because you're like, it feels funny in there. And um, when I pushed, I, when I got up, rather, uh, and I looked at the water, it was like blood. It was like the whole thing was like just blood. And I remember thinking, did something break? Like, what What did just, yeah. what just happened? Again, I have no idea what anal sex and gay and all of that is. <laughs> and so I remember one thing that stays in my head. I remember my reflection of the blood water on the toilet water. So it was red and I see my face in it. And for some reason that, that image just, it's all, it's still in my head. I got in the shower and my mother's like, why are you taking a shower? Cause I think at this time it could have been about seven ish, eight around there. She was like, why are you taking a shower? Whatever. She questioned something. And I said, it was hot outside cause it was July. I was like, it's hot outside. I was sweating. And she was like, why is the door closed? 
for some reason we didn't like our you know with the lock and i was like because i was using the bathroom you know so i was like finding excuses that she's sensing something's wrong mothers always know everything <laughs> well because yeah i was i was acting a little bit different than when i come home from walking the dog on a normal day right sure um and so yeah. i think that that's kind of what happened in a way i kind of became a little different and so i remember being a little bit distant but then i started to get all the symptoms and then my dad was always working and so he didn't know what was happening but my mother was the one that was checking in like why is the bed so wet and i'm like i don't know i was hot you know your body your temperature you have a fever yeah yeah like we i wasn't even thinking about any of that like you wouldn't have known that information though, yeah though. Any of that info, we did not know at all. Like, mm -hmm. the world now is a whole different world. But in 1986, we did not know that this was what happens. First of all, I didn't even know that two men could do what just happened. That wasn't my thought of being gay. I just thought that it was just something else. I don't even know what I thought it was. I thought it was a behavior, not an activity or an action or... I don't know. It's really strange to think about Like it a now. sensibility, kind of? Yeah, it's like a way of being versus something that you actually did that makes you actually different from from someone else your brother i had the same feeling that was the same for me i had the same i didn't understand the connection it just thought you had to you're a certain kind of flamboyant kind of somewhat feminine person that was gay and that was somehow bad but i didn't connect the two yeah yeah um so then how did this you're very sick yeah so i started to not feel well and my well my mother first took me to figure out what's happening they thought i had mono all these other different things one of the appointments my dad did come with us i was in the pediatrics um they were just trying to figure out what was wrong with me because my mouth was not saying anything about what happened <laughs> and at this point i didn't know what was happening anyway even if i did say anything mm -hmm. so all i remember is all the tests i remember feeling almost isolated and then i also do remember when it was discovered what I had and I went home, the sort of the disappointment that was in like my parents' face, especially my dad, like he worked all the time, but now it almost seemed like even the Saturdays were gone. Um, like it was just different. You felt just such a difference in the air. And also my mom lost her mom. And so my mom was dealing with that. So I remember that being sort of something heavy that was already on us. Nobody ever asked me, who did this, why they did this. It wasn't like even a conversation, which I find interesting that nobody said, wait, how do you even get this? Like nobody actually right. took the time to even ask that. It was really more about, at this point, I'm assuming like survival because I remember they said that I would die within two years because that, that was the mentality. And so in my process, I looked at it as, okay, I'm, I'm only going to live to 16. So I guess... I guess all those photographs did mean something <laughs> at that time, kind of like just living. And I had just met my friend Wade, uh, who we call Mahogany, and, and James Climbs, who's no longer with us. And so I started to understand that, okay, so I am gay. And I met two other guys who were like me. And so now I had two people. So they were teaching me and saying things that I was then incorporating within my own development as a gay man. Uh, lingo, expression, you know, by that time I was like, 
or close to 15. This is this is like 87, like Papa Don't Preach was playing in the radio. Because, you know, I do time now with Madonna. Um, of course, yeah. My time frame, my timeline is Madonna songs. Whatever it was, I did something. And I remember my dad, a form of disappointment. But this was ongoing, though. Things that he just didn't like about me and what I was becoming. There was a lot of silence. Like, I would come in the room and he would leave the room. I had my own fork, spoon, plate. Because at that time, they were like, oh, we don't know how you could get this. And so I had my own stuff. I remember also every time I used the restroom, Clorox was used to wipe down with the surfaces in the bathroom because people didn't yeah. know. And so the Times was mm. talking about it. Channel 7 was talking about it. Everybody was talking about AIDS. But it was still linked to being gay and it was still, there was a stigma attached to it. And so I remember we couldn't go to the pool. My sister couldn't play with me like we used to because my mother was afraid that what if she scratches me or so we couldn't play. But we would sneak around and when my mother would get on the phone to gossip with her friends, I was able to sneak in and play with my sister's dolls. At this point, I knew I was different and I was gay, so I didn't care about that part. I was at this point living my life, but because I was only going to live those two years, allegedly, I was just going full force. So my dad, with all of the disappointments and my own self-discovery, I remember we went in the living room. And for some reason, I did something. I don't know if it was because I was wearing eyeliner or whatever it was. I did something that I think kind of made him feel uncomfortable. I just remember the quote yeah. because it is kind of something important that echoes in my head. He looked at me and said, you were the one who was supposed to be like me. He didn't say it that nice. <laughs> But he said it a little bit. It was Spanglish. And I remember just saying, I don't want to be like you. And I said it back in English because that was a form of defiant is to speak back in English. But then I saw him get sad. And um, the man was doing the best he could, right? He was barely there, yeah. really, because of his working so much. And so I could imagine how that could have hurt him, too. But he was hurting me as well. And I learned early on that if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you right back. At least that was my way of being at that time. I said that back, and I remember his eyes. Because my dad had interesting eyes. He had these <laughs> these little overlap things at, at the end of his eyes. So I just remember them being like, they look like much sadder, and they like shrunk a little bit. He just turned their, uh, away and just went to the living room or whatever. But I remember the words. I never forget those words. During this period of estrangement, your dad isn't talking to you, but you go out and you found a new community for yourself. I, I hate to talk like this, but in a way, the family was turning your, their backs on you in a way, because then I wasn't the kid that they thought I would be. And so you, you start to look for other things. And so in that process, I, I discovered my friend Wade, my friend James, and they were introducing me to many gay things that I had no idea about. It was through their eyes that I was living. And I remember those were some of the best times of my life because I was so innocent, but I was so sponge. I was like soaking up everything. I learned a lot about what it was like being gay and upper Manhattan and that freedom that we had and that history too, because I grew up in Harlem. And so it's sort of like this history of like the Renaissance and Billie Holiday lived over there and Duke Ellington played over there. Lena Horne sang there. And then you now are learning that other people, that these underground folks lived over there. Crystal Abasia lived in that building over there. And I'm like, well, what's a Crystal Abasia? Peppa is over there. Look at, oh, hi, Miss Pepper. And I'm like, who was that? So this became my world. I recall my friend Wade taking me down. It was like Thanksgiving. And this is now 1988. 
mind you, my whole life from, well, whole life, meaning 86 to 87, <laughs> Wade was like teaching me. So I, I started to see these figures, these folks. And so understanding what it's like to be different, how an act of being very flamboyant and snapping your finger, which kids don't do nowadays, but snapping your finger was like an act of activism, how that mm-hmm. meant something, you know what I mean? So that was my world. I soaked up everything that they were telling me about what it was like to be black, brown, and young and gay and up Manhattan. But then he took me down to Ipuji, which is the Institute for the Protection of Gay and Lesbian Youth. They were having a Thanksgiving, it was November 15, I think, of 1988. And he said, oh, we're going to go down to the village. And I was like, what's a village? <laughs> and then he, we walked down what's what I now know, like the back of my hand. It's Christopher Street. It was kind of cold because the wind coming from the pier. And he would say hello to a whole bunch of like other kids that looked like me who were very flamboyant, who were very gay. And I was like, oh, my God. And to me, the way I describe it is, you remember in The Wizard of Oz, it was all black and white in the very beginning. Then Dorothy's mm-hmm. house lands and the door opens and it's full technicolor and Judy is now in color. I started to see people that look like me that were acting like Wade. All of the fierceness and all of the great things about being young, black and brown. So anyway, so we go into this place and they were allowed to bring a new person. So I was his new person and it's a youth center. And so I think I was, what, 17? So I walk in there, and of course, I'm the new cute boy. And everybody's like, who is that? Miss Wade, who is that? (laughs) And Wade is like, that's my daughter. That's what he called me. He was like, that's my daughter. Leave her alone. She's not here for y'all or whatever he said. And they're over there voguing, which, of course, I know is voguing. But at that moment, I was like, what are they doing? He was like, they're voguing. Our sisters are voguing. Everybody was like in clicks. It was just wonderful. And the clicks were houses. I didn't know that either because I'm learning as I'm going along, right? And so that's why having mentors is very important. To this day, I still say that man, instead of infected me, he should have taught me. He should have, you know, guide me. He should have said something. You know, you don't need to be out here or whatever. He should have said something. Maybe my destiny would have been a little bit different. But I also like the life that I have. So now I see all these people. It's my introduction to what we know now as housing ball. All the kids are in there. Some were homeless. Some have their families. Some have their gay families and all of that. And I got the 101 of what it's like to be young, black and brown and gay. And so I started to meet this person and this person. I started to hang out with them. Eventually, people were fighting over what house I was going to join. Still not understanding what was happening. And then December 5th, I became a member of the House of Pendavis. And Avis Pendavis became my gay mother, or my house mother, but gay mother, because I claim both. So she became sort of the female figure of, of mentorship. And then Hector Strava, a couple of years a little later, uh, early 90s, became my gay father. So now I had gay parents, gay family, house family, which is a whole different ballgame. And I was at balls. I started to be intrigued with competing. So the whole world opened up. So watching Pose is really funny because it's kind of that time frame, the first season. And it was funny to me because it's literally, if they were to do a movie about my life, it would be the first season of Pose. Like that was the early years. Right. Because it really, that was our reality. You know, you had kids that were working the stroll because of survival. A lot of them were homeless. The pier was a whole different world. 
the pier actually was the the home, the apartment. That's where anybody young and gay was hanging out. If you were, you know, brown or, or black. Because usually the, the white queens were hanging out at Washington Square Park or Thompson Square Park. So that was yeah, a whole yeah. different, you know, that was the separation of the of color. But Christopher Street was ours. We used to call her mama because she really lured all of the young kids to her. She was Mother Goose. <laughs> Can you talk a little about the origin of the ballroom houses? The early houses were named after the mothers who were, that was their pageant name. A lot of the mothers were pageant girls. Ballroom existed already. We've heard about the Harlem Drag Balls of the 1920s, 30s. During the 40s, we see it in movies and stuff like that. So it makes sense when you think of it, of how America sort of became. Ballroom kind of went a little bit underground, a little again. But before that, it was out. Everybody was like a part of it in some sort of way. And it was New York and Chicago. Chicago was also, you know, the birth of like drag balls. It spread out a little bit. But from the histories that I've learned, New York and Chicago were like the drag pageant world for the girls. And so the story goes, and you could see the clip in the film, uh, The Queen, the queen yeah. where Crystal LaBeja was, and that was her pageant name, LaBeja mean beautiful. So she was Crystal the Beauty, basically, and if you translate it. So she lost to a white girl from Philadelphia, which is Harlow. She lost to her, but she felt she was the most beautiful because she represented herself different. I don't know why she was so upset <laughs> because there were other girls of color who didn't get as irate as she did in a wonderful way. Hi, this is Matthew. I just wanted to give a little background on the film that Luna's talking about here. The Queen is a documentary film made in 1968 by filmmaker Frank Simon and narrated by the drag queen Mother Flawless Sabrina, aka Jack Dorishow, who was an activist, actor, performer, and transgender pioneer who lived in New York City until her death in 2017. The documentary focuses on the experiences of the drag queens organizing and participating in the 1967 Miss All-America Camp Beauty Contest held at New York City's Town Hall. It's considered iconic and it holds a place of great significance in American queer history. Here's the audio of the scene that Luna is referring to. The main voice that you hear is that of Crystal LaBeja and towards the end, Mother Flawless Sabrina comes in. Because she knew it's Victor Haller. She said, Crystal Darling, don't go. That's right, that's because right, you're right, not going to get it. And that's why all the true beauties oh didn't come. You. It's in bad taste and you're showing your colors and stuff. I am. I am doing a bad, but I got an, I have a right to show my color, darling. I am beautiful and I know I'm beautiful. What I do like in the film, Sabrina says, you're showing your color. And to me, that always stands out to me when she, that line, you're showing yeah. your color. And she says, I have every right to show my colors. Like, I just think it yeah. was so powerful. And it was the birth of the houses. It was that language that created the houses. Because before it was individual people. Like, you, Matt, had your own house, the house of Matt. You know, let's... <laughs> and so that was your drag name and you yeah. represented Matt. And so you started your own house eventually after this happened. And the reason why I think Crystal did that is because the fashion houses are called the house of Chanel, like in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so I think she copied that idea. I think it was 70 or 71 or something like that was the first house of name in a flyer an invitation so after that all the girls started to do it i kind of like that though but the houses began in you know late 60s after that experience 
but the drag balls and all of that was happening way before I was even born. So. The houses function as teams for ballroom yeah. competitions, as well yes. as pastoral care, like what you were talking about. So then you're in this, and you are competing too, right, for the house of Pendavis. Yes. Or rather, with the house of Pendavis. <laughs> so the first time that I actually competed, although I joined the house in 88, the first time I believe that I competed was 90. So it took me a good, like almost two years because also what i loved about avis the mother and that girl blanca and pose reminds me of her so much she just took care of us and she even had two or three members sometimes one at a time staying with her until they got their yeah, stuff yeah. together avis she cared more that we were going to school so she made sure that i was in school so she was like don't worry about competition in other words don't worry about competition right now i want you to concentrate on school and you know and keeping your shit together like i want you to be a responsible yeah. young gay man and so i thought that was beautiful i think some of the things that she instilled in us is thing that she wanted for herself although i hear that she did finish high school i don't know if she ever went to college or anything like that she made a lot of clothes for all of the girls that were competing including people that were competing against her she would do their costume also Sometimes wow. she'll lose, and most of the time she will win. <laughs> Speaking of Pose, I mean, Hector Extravaganza was a consulting producer on Pose, and in fact, the first season of Pose was dedicated to his memory because he died before it was finished. Hi, it's Matthew again. When I spoke with Luna, we didn't quite go into just how influential and iconic Hector Extravaganza was, so I wanted to just give a little bit of context here. Hector was a central figure in the New York City ballroom scene from the very early 80s until his death in 2018. He and the House of Extravaganza were intrinsically involved in Madonna's Vogue period and the 1991 documentary film Paris is Burning, which is another classic in the vein of the Queen. He worked as a stylist and a designer for recording artists Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown, and through his work with the Gay Men's Health Crisis, the world's first AIDS advocacy organization, was a founding member of the House of Latex and the Latex Ball, New York's largest ballroom event. At the time of his death, he was known as the grandfather of the House of Extravaganza, and as I mentioned, he was a producer for Ryan Murphy's drama series Pose about the ballroom scene, the final episode of which aired last week after three seasons. In marking his death, the New York Times ran both an obituary and later feature-length coverage of Hector's memorial service, which was held at El Museo del Barrio on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. The line to get in that day stretched around the block as hundreds gathered to pay him tribute and his ashes were housed on stage in a crystal encrusted urn which rested on a gold pedestal. Okay, back to Luna. So can you talk about your relationship with him as your gay father? How did you meet and what resonated with you about him? Hector was always an interesting character. And when I met him, it was an interesting situation. So, of course, we all hung out at the pier. That was the norm. And I remember that it was casual. For a while, it was casual. Like, hey, how are you? I sometimes thought they, he was eyeing me because at that time, it was okay to steal members from another house. So, in a way, I kind of wanted him because extravaganza in my head was very powerful and beautiful. They looked really put together. They were very fashion forward. So in my 
fantasy head, I was like, oh, I would, it would be nice to be an extravaganza. Although my dedication is to Avis, you know what I mean? So because mm-hmm. two different houses. So that was sort of just my my little history with him. Hi, goodbye, things like that. There was a moment where Hector wasn't feeling well. And he was in the hospital for a while. He was like not around. But I started to become a little bit more popular and, and you know, and hanging out at the pier, socializing with the, the girls from the balls and stuff like that. And so my name was getting a little bit, you know, a little buzz. Who is this Luna guy? Hector was in the hospital for a while and a lot of us knew about it. And so I remember that when he came out, I saw him at Christopher Street at the pier, which that's tradition. Like I knew people that were dying. They just wanted to be on Christopher Street. It's like, you should be home resting. That's how important Christopher Street and being seen was like for us. Anyway, so Hector was out there and I remember seeing him. And I remember I said to him, I tell people that he's my father. And he seemed surprised. And I remember his face too. He was really surprised. He was like, you you do? And I thought I said something wrong. Like I was like, yeah, I, I just feel connected to you. So I look at you like a father figure. And he seemed intrigued, but also like, oh, wow, like kind of surprised. And then from that moment on, he became like my dad. Like he started to call me son and all of that. Our relationship is also different because Hector was positive. And so mm-hmm. he knows what it's like to be positive and young. And so that that was something we had in common. By that time, now we're already at like 93, 94 I did some MTV specials, Peter Jennings special, Living the Age of AIDS. So I was being seen as like this guy with AIDS, this kid with AIDS on television, and he doesn't care about it. For some reason, just looked at me and he was older than me. Like, wow, how, where do you get this nerve to be so forward? And I was like, well, I always felt like to not say it, it's like you're holding a secret. And I I just like to be open with people. And that's always been my, my thing. It's like, I'd rather just tell you the truth. His nickname to me was Freedom Child because I I gave him that nerve to be open about his status because he didn't have that nerve. Although he was positive, I think a year before me, I think he became infected at 84, I mean 85. But he called me Freedom because I gave him the nerve to be free, to let go of himself, to be open. So it's funny because he's older, you would think it would be the opposite, right? Like I should be learning from him. What kind of things did you learn? <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> I mean, you you handed it to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, in that case, it's more ballroom related stuff, but really more about just life things. Like one thing he didn't like is that I always kind of would say, I'm going to do this and I would doubt myself and he would push that and say, you're afraid to step out, which is funny, right? Because I just finished saying the opposite of me being out. But there's certain things that I'm afraid to step into because I don't know. I like to be safe. He was more wild than me. So part of one of his things I recall him trying to to teach me how to be more, what would be the word? More daring, rather. Daring, or okay, yeah. Right, daring, expressive. He also would lend me clothes to compete because he was very fashion-forward. I wasn't. I'm not a fashion person. I'm a t-shirt and a and jean guy. If it has, like, one of our My Divas on the front of the t-shirt, I'm, I'm perfect with that. But he's the one that would lend me furs, suits, shoes. Of course, I would have to give it back. Did you sit down and have talks with him about relationships or about your parents? Well, no, not parents. Okay. We didn't talk like personal stuff like that. That's what's interesting. We did talk a lot about guys. We like the same type of guy. So sometimes we would be hanging out, Hector and I, and I would say, oh my God, 
don't look now, but the guy with the blue shirt is staring at me and smiled at me. So Hector would go, "Oh, which one?" <laughs> and I'll be and I'll be like, "Don't don't look at him now." And then he'll be like, "Oh, he's cute." And I'll be like, oh, "Well, let me go a little bit later. Let me get to the bathroom. I'll be right back." So I'll go to the bathroom. When I come back, they're over there talking, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, Hector." <laughs> He was oh looking my at God. me. Betrayal. <laughs> but no, it's because we had the same type. And I point him out. At least that's how, how I, I process it in my head. But somebody else would say, oh, he was just, what do you call that when you uh, <laughs> block? Cock block. He was a cock block, yeah. <laughs> he was just a fun person. Like he was, although I call him my gay father because, you know, that was who became my mentor that taught me things and, and things about life and, and, and fashion and all of the ballroom stuff. And encouraged me a lot. He's the one that told me I should take the job at GMAC because I was happy working at Hedrick Martin Institute. He was almost like a, a brother too, you know what I mean? So when you saw us together, you actually would think that we were kind of brothers. And as a matter of fact, some guys would access that. I was like, are you guys brothers? Not because we looked alike, but I think because of the, the aura that we gave out. I am like that with some of my gay kids where it's like, mm -hmm. I'm the father figure and you should respect my word. But also there's a sense of like the high five and the laughing and the kiki and you know, all the stuff that goes with this. How much older than you was he approximately? Well, that's the, the funny thing, because when he died, I discovered his actual age because for some reason, Hector wanted to appear to be older rather. In my head, I'm like, no, really people want to be younger. But he allegedly uh, <laughs> celebrated his 60th birthday, but he wasn't 60. I think we're seven years apart. Uh, I think okay. he was 54 when he passed. What about the similarities between your father and Hector? Well, what's interesting is that Hector and my dad both are Leos, and they both have the same birthday. They both died the same year. My dad in January of 2018, Hector at December of 2018. It was quite interesting that the beginning of 2018, I was going through my the loss of my dad and everything that goes with all of those feelings that I, I still deal with. Um, and then Hector died at the very end of that year, which it was, it was an awful year to begin with because yeah, of my yeah. losing my dad. But then they both had lung cancer. I know my dad worked in construction for many years. That's what he did. So I'm assuming all those years of the 70s and 80s were the bestos and all that stuff that we now know. But Hector, I still don't know why Hector had lung cancer. That's also still not clear. So my dad, eventually, we discovered he had Alzheimer's. And I remember that was kind of shocking. But by the time we discovered it, it made sense because he just wasn't himself. There was things about him that changed. It was actually awful to watch him become this kid. My dad became almost childlike because that's what happens. It's almost like you're reversed. It's almost like you go from what you knew present to like you slowly go back to what you knew as a kid. And so I think that that's what was happening with my dad. By that time, I already was living on my own and I would only visit two or three times a week. My mom is the one that I was concentrated on, so I didn't notice. But listening to my mother and sister, they realized that this was probably going on for a good 20 years before the end. I remember how my dad was forgetting us, how we came into his life, which is why I'm saying that. He remembered my mother to, the, I believe, the very end. He would smile at her. 
And then I believe he forgot my sister first. And I remember my sister cried the moment that she realized it. Then I remember when I came over, I could tell that he didn't know who I was. So then it was me and then my brother. And then he remembered my mother, I believe, to the very end because of the way he would respond to her. But she was the one he knew the longest. So he was forgetting us how we came in. My sister was the baby. I'm the middle child. My brother's the oldest. So it was like that. It's a horrible thing to go through, though. Yeah. Did you manage to get any kind of reconciliation? Did that estrangement end? One thing that I do remember growing up is my dad used to kiss me. Fathers kiss their sons. You know, it depends. I know Hispanic dads do. <laughs> Italian fathers do. Not all fathers do. But my dad used to give me kisses in the cheek. And I just thought, now that I think of it, I think it was the cutest thing in the world. But he stopped kissing me after discovering the HIV. I remember then at the time that oh, he opened the door when I was visiting. And normally it was the handshake. Um, and this is now, I was already, I think, in my 30s. I took my hand out to shake, but he pulled me in and gave me a kiss. And I was like, wait. And I remember I, I didn't know what to do. I just remember being nervous. And I remember because I was nervous and my hand was like in between the shake that I just didn't know what to do with this hand. And so then I just threw it over his shoulder and just almost like an embrace. I recall going to my mom and saying, Papi, kiss me in the cheek. And my mother's like, what? <laughs> because it was just something he just didn't do with me anymore. Then it became a normal thing. Every time I came over, it was a kiss. But then knowing that he was going through Alzheimer's at the time, I'm personally thinking that he remembers me as the kid and he was kissing me the way he used to before having HIV. And I remember that kiss really meant something to me. Then it became normal and then I was relaxed about it. There's something kind of miraculous about you because you were 14, you were told you had two years to live and that you are still alive. I mean, yeah. how did, <laughs> you know, and I mean, it's sort of amazing that he didn't see it that way in a basic kind of sense. Like he was told that by the doctor too. Right. And yet here you are. Yeah. Alive. Well, the funny like, thing is how? that we, you know what? We didn't even talk about any of these things. So I can't even give you a backstory of like, because basically they told us that I have HIV. Then I went home and I waited two years to die. <laughs> but that's right. when I picked up the camera, going back to the camera. It was within yeah, those yeah. two years that I started to create, photographs self-portraits because i wanted to take photographs of myself what i looked like before i became the images of what we saw on television of aids and so right. my early years of photography is those two years is self-portraits me at the park me hugging the tree me like doing different things and those pictures are priceless to me now but thinking about what they were, using the camera that my dad gave me, the camera gave me a voice. Although my dad wasn't speaking to me, the camera gave me the voice to be free in a way. So it's almost like a metaphor. The camera became sort of what I wanted my dad to give me. That I was going to yeah, be okay, yeah. that you're kept, you keep a photo. Yeah. That life is, everything's going to work out. And after I made it to 16, 17, and here I am now, uh, next year I'll be 50. <laughs> yeah. I'm still like that kid. Somebody told me that you kind of not mentally stop, but there's something that happens when somebody goes through something tr traumatic at whatever age you're, you stay in that mindset to this day. I'm still almost like in a race of time. 
-hmm. Like I still find myself overdoing because I want to be able to leave something behind. Meanwhile, I already lived this year 35 years with the virus. So Mm -hmm. it's like it doesn't leave you that sense of wanting to have something to leave behind because you only have two years to live, but I have 35 years that I've lived. (laughs) So that's That's what keeps me going. I mean, it's a pretty, it's a gift, but it's a brutal gift. You, You carry that, but you have this incredible life that you have and you've documented it. And you are also a legendary father of the House of Khan at this. You're not just the father of the House of Khan. You're a legend, you're a legendary status like your gay father, like Willie Ninja, like the greats. You're one of the greats. I'm a Hall of Famer like them. (laughs) You are. You are a Hall of Famer. What does that mean now that you talk to, you have gay kids, you talked about them, not your Mm -hmm. biological children, you have kids that you are the father of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ballroom children. What does it mean that you're their father? I think my role as a father figure, because also I'm a mother too, so it depends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a mother and a father, actually. That's the good thing about, you know, gay families, that you could be whatever role that doesn't exist in their life. But as a parent of gay kids, it really goes back to being 14. I didn't have that mentor. A man did not give me the right, you know, path to go. He just took advantage of a young kid. And so being a gay father is to provide that bridge of this is what it's like to be a successful, responsible gay man or trans woman, because I have all types of kids. I have trans women. I got lesbian daughters. I got <laughs> I got the whole LGBT world in my world uh, as my children. It's about teaching them how to be comfortable. It's nice to see when they all have their own little successes, which I love. And I love when we celebrate them, like when they finish college and I'm able to go to their graduation or if they're getting married or they're turning 30, 35. Meanwhile, they were my kids since they were like 14, 15 years old themselves. So it's just the journeys that we have together is so beautiful. And if I were to do a family tree, it would just be so amazing to look at it. My job as a parent, it was really just to make them into responsible young LGBT people and to do what Avis did. Go to school, get a job. How can I help you? And part of my work at GMAC is that too. I might not be that young person's gay father or mother, but I am a parent figure and I am an older gay man who has experienced life to a point. That's why I love working with young people because you're getting them at a point where they're trying to figure themselves out. And so I feel like with my experiences, I could maybe get them a little something, a guidance. That's what I love about being a gay parent. Sometimes that's what happens about with having gay families too. It's like, they come into your life for a reason, like everything else, right? Life is like that. Yeah. It's, things happen for reasons. Sometimes we just need a little yeah. a little bird in our ear telling us something. And sometimes we need that guidance. So I want to be that little tiny bird. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Erin's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum. 